This podcast is brought to you by Bonus Room Productions and We Own This Town. I am Jason T. Mears, Esquire. And I'm Kelly Hoyle Bullock. And we are San Dimas Today. How's it going, Kelly? Oh, JT, it's going pretty good. Got my hoodie on. You know, it's October. Temperature's dropping. It's Halloween time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Halloween during a pandemic time. We will be avoiding all trick-or-treaters. We'll be retreating up to my father's house, which gets no trick-or-treaters. We're eating a bunch of candy and costumes and watching probably spooky buddies, uh, which is going to be a nightmare, but it'll be better than you know having to not answer the door for trick-or-treaters. Nice. I did watch, uh, speaking of Halloween, I did watch Hubie Halloween the mm. other night, uh, which, uh, you know, I got to say, it was great escapist classic Adam Sandler. Um, okay. It you looked know what like I mean? The water boy. It, it looked like a cross between the water boy and Ernest Scared Stupid. You are absolutely right. Okay. Um, All right. And it was an hour and a half of uh, getting away from everything. That was nice. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so we have some tragic news. Everybody who listens to this podcast has already heard this, but uh, Eddie Van Halen passed. You know, a bit shocking. He's one of those guys who's been around forever, but he's younger than you think he is because he came on the scene at such a young age. You know, for me, he's on the Mount Rushmore. He transformed guitar. He was the guy to do it after Hendrix. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. There's a reason that he's referenced in the first film, and it it turns out that they had reached out to him to ask if he'd be in the third, and he declined for personal reasons, and now, sadly, we know why. It would have been great to have him in the movies, and for us, you know, we were both born in 78, so by the time we realized what music was, Eddie Van Halen was already an established figure, right? Mm -hmm. But he was was the reigning rock god uh, of our youth, and one of those points, flashpoints in the history of electric guitar that... You know, yes, he, he made a permanent mark. Right. Bill and Ted's favorite guitar player. Uh, what's great is you can you can draw so many connections to the films, right? Uh, whether it's Steve Vai, who considers Van Halen a mentor, and we all know Vai played all over the Bogus Journey soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Dweezil Zappa, who also considers Eddie Van Halen a mentor. And, uh, well, he at least pinned... <laughs> Two heads are better than one that was on uh, <laughs> Excellent Adventure. So, In speaking of music on the films, we have a treat for our listeners. Oh, my uh, gosh. First time ever, guys. We're doing a two-part episode. We had one of the most amazing interviews we've ever had. It was, it was enlightening. It was delightful. Jonathan Leahy joined us. He was the music supervisor on Face the Music. We talked for a very, very long time. He was so generous with his time and his insight. I can't wait for you guys to dive into this. First of all, if you're out there listening and you're wondering, what does a music supervisor do? Because, you know, we were too. It's it's one of those jobs that I think gets a bit mythologized, but no one really knows what they do. Well, they do a lot. And then in a movie that is about two guys and their daughters that love music, then it's an even more important role in the film. And we learned all kinds of great stuff. Oh, yeah. And if the climax of that film is centered around a piece of music, oh, just imagine. Guys, just sit back, enjoy this first part. The second part will be coming out soon. We're really excited about this. Here's our interview with Jonathan Leahy. Excellent! Jonathan Leahy, thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to be here. So let's get started. You were music supervisor on Face the Music, which is 
incredible. But we just explained for our audience what a music supervisor does. Oversimplified, you're in charge of all aspects of the music that goes in a television show or a movie or a video game or a or commercial for that matter. I mean, the, fir- the very first piece of your job might well be choosing the composer, who's obviously a huge member of the music team and a big, big part of what defines the, the feeling of the film or, or the TV show you're working on. So there's the composer hiring process. There's choosing all the songs that you use, the licensed songs that go in the film, you know, pre-existing work from bands you know and love. Um, and then oftentimes there's new music creation involved. So sometimes you play the role of music producer. And then when there's camera, there's on-camera performances, which as you know, there's a lot of in Face the Music, there's a lot of coordination getting the on-camera music performances right. And that there's a lot of details to get into with that. But So w- would an example of that be um, like Bill and Ted's air guitar? Right, like making, like finding somebody to actually compose the air guitar, and then making sure, or would that be something that that very much is? And, and Bill and Ted's air guitar. When Dean first called me, Dean Pariseau, the director, called me about the film. That was one of the first things. I'm a guitar player myself, um, not a great one, but I, <laughs> I love the instrument. And that was one of the first things I said to myself was. You know, Steve Vai was the shredder, the air shredder in Bogus Journey. We got to do something really cool for the third film. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the very first things I thought of. And as you and your listeners may know, we got Tosin Abasi from Animals as Leaders to be yeah. our new air shredder. And Tosin Abasi might not be the household name that Steve Vai was in 1991. It's hard, hard to imagine. I don't know how, how well-known Steve Vai was at the time. He played in Whitesnake. He played with Frank Zappa. I, I think like folks that were really, really into guitar rock, like really like people that were thought Rolling Stone was new too mainstream. I think at that point they were like, yeah, Steve, I totally knew it. But I yeah. don't think myself as like an 11 or 12 year old actually understood Steve Vai, but I yeah. knew that the air guitar licks rocked. Right. Yeah. I mean, they were yeah. great. They were great. In the, they were great in the first one and they were great. Um, the first one was done by, I'm going to butcher his last name, Stevie Salas. And he also did Rufus's playing at the end of the film. Um, but anyways, they, they like so many other things from Excellent Adventure to Bogus Journey, they, they like took a big step forward. Um, and they went from uh, a great guitar player, Stevie, to like a guitar god in Steve <laughs> Vai. So I didn't want to retreat from that. I was like, okay, they've set the bar really, hot, really high. And Dean said to me when we first talked about it, he was like, I don't know anything about shredding or you know contemporary guitar players but i do know that i want it can you help us find something that represents what shredding sounds like in 2020 and you know a lot of the shredding hasn't changed it's just gotten maybe slightly faster it's it's a little bit like piano virtuosity it's kind of stayed the same it's just that more people can do it now mm-hmm. because the the education is out there the youtube tutorials have have really changed <laughs> the, the nature of, of um self-instruction. But then I already knew about Tosin Abasi, but not well. And so I, I just went down the rabbit hole. And the more I learned about him, the more I was, I really thought, I was like, this is our guy. And then I saw a YouTube video of Tosin Abasi on tour with Steve Vai. And Steve Vai brings him on stage saying, this is the next generation version oh of, of me. <laughs> and after I saw that, I was like, okay, the search is over my new priority is getting Tosin Abasi to say yes. And luckily he did. The rest is history. We actually, we, we tracked Tosin in the studio 
doing all those licks with picture. So he was looking at, at Alex and Keanu as he played all the, all the riffs. We did it a week before the COVID lockdown started. And actually while we were in the studio, everyone, you know, it's a studio full of guitar, of music nerds, everyone's phone buzzed with the alert that South by Southwest had been canceled. It was already starting to feel serious, but we were like, sure. oh man, like, and his band Animals as Leaders had a tour booked. And I think like the day after that, they canceled their tour. So whatever it was, I'm glad that we, we snuck that one in under the wire. Yeah, that, that's huge. Uh, that That's great that that worked yeah. out. One of the really cool things about Tosin, you may or may not know, he plays an eight string guitar, which includes, you know, really low notes. Well, you might've noticed that for the first time ever in, in, in Face the Music, somebody else joins them playing air guitar and that's death playing air bass playing along with them. Oh, that's a great point. I did not even realize that. Yeah. No, you know what? (laughs) I confess I've done a Google search. I wanted to see if anyone noticed if anyone cared and I couldn't, I I haven't seen anybody uh, talk about it. So So beautiful. So when, so you, all these, all this time, you know, for the last 30 years, all these riffs have been two guitars because it's Bill and Ted. When they finally do air shredding with death, there's two guitars and a bass and Tosin Abasi is playing the bass part on his eight string guitar. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So it's three part harmony. And I think that's kind of rad. That is totally awesome. (laughs) Like, uh, I'm assuming you were a big Bill and Ted fan before you even got approached for this thing. Like I was, I was a Bill and Ted fan. Yeah. You know, I'm, I was born in 78. I was 11 when the first one came out, 13 when the second one came out. I mean, I'm kind of... I'm you were kind both of, born in 78 yeah. too. So I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the sweet spot. Right this, there is, with this, you. this is right in the middle of my strike zone. <laughs> so you get approached by Dean and what, what are your first thoughts? Are you like, okay, well, got to focus on the score. The score's got to do X or is it the soundtrack we've got to get, you know, like where did your mind go or did it just click, click, click and like just started filling slots like that? I mean, how did that work in your Yeah. Brain? Well, number one, my, it was not, <laughs> it was not at all urgent because it could be done in post-production, but uh, I went out of order and, and focused on the air shredder first. But number two was finding the right composer and obviously bringing back David Newman was a possibility. I actually, I left that conversation to Dean, who has a relationship with, uh, with David Newman. Total tr- honesty, I don't, know, I don't know how that conversation went. We, we ended up meeting with a whole bunch of composers. We listened to a ton of music. We met with a ton of composers. In the end, the best fit for the project, as you know, was Mark Isham. So, uh, you know, Mark's, Mark's resume speaks for itself. He's been making incredible music for a long time. So... We got Mark Isham, and one of the reasons I prioritize hiring a composer maybe earlier in the process than in other projects was that I was hoping to task our composer with some of the skeletal mock-ups of the final song that saves the universe. If only it was just a tempo map or a very loose arrangement that we could use to have the actors perform along to. We can get into how that how that actually transpired uh, later if you want, but didn't exactly go to plan, but that was, that was one of the reasons I prioritized uh, bringing Mark on early. There's a bunch of different ways that we could have gone with the music. And as I, th- as I told you guys earlier, I've listened to your podcast. <laughs> I've listened to your previous podcast where I've, hear, I've, I've listened to you kind of dissect the choices we made. And God knows, I don't usually Google the projects I work on and like, or go on subreddits or like see what fans are saying. I, I, with two kids, I guess I just don't have the time. But being 
such a Bill and Ted fan and knowing how much fans care about this particular franchise, I got to admit, I'm on the subreddit. <laughs> I'm, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm reading the comments. I'm in the Facebook group. I'm, you know, I'm just observing, but I really wanted to see how we did. And even before, even before we finished the film, I wanted to see what people were expecting, fully aware of what expectations were out there and what things uh, did connect, didn't connect. And I have my own thoughts on that too. When I first started, I was like, you can imagine, put yourself in, in my shoes. You get the call, Bill and Ted 3, we're doing it. First thing I thought was, all right, we're going to put some Iron Maiden in there. We're going to put some <laughs> Faith No More in there. We're going to put some Extreme in there. We're definitely going to have a Kiss song. We're going to be some I Van mean, Halen, right? There's going to be some Van Halen. We're definitely putting Dokken in there. Um, <laughs> uh, what else? I mean, the first song on my playlist, and I put this on the, the playlist that Dean and I contributed to Apple Music. The first song that I wanted to put in this film was Ingve Malmsteen, Rising Force. Like oh, that's wow. what, that's what I wanted in this okay. film. It's <laughs> it's so bonkers, bombastic, and ju- it's it's the most shredtastic. No uh, no apologies. Uh, you know, neoclassical rock song ever. Yeah, I, I love it. I actually tried it. I, I tried it in a couple scenes in the film. It was it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> anyways we could have had a lot of fun we we could have had a ton of fun just taking a complete nostalgia trip um and licensing old songs from from 30 plus years ago but as it turned out that's not the movie that that's not the movie that everyone wanted to make like that we could have done it it could have been it could have been great that is one way to do it we didn't bake that cake that would have been fine but the beauty of what face the music ended up being kelly and i have talked about this for for hours now it, it's it's its own movie it's a new movie it's an update it's not a retread it is a continuation yeah. and that's shown through in every scene and every musical cue too so i i would that would have been fun but i really really appreciate the route that you guys took yeah and that was that's thanks to dean i mean the the people you you all know i'm sure like who's driving right. this ship yeah, dean sure. uh, ed, ed and chris uh, Scott Krupp, the original original producer, back yeah. to pr- produce all three films. Uh, the young new producer, Alex Leibovich, and I can't say this enough: Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves themselves, and also Steven Soderbergh, mm-hmm. who executive producer. Yeah, yeah. All the all the these are the bosses that are that are driving the ship. I'm humble servant, <laughs> trying to t- trying to help them make the movie they want to make the best it can be. So they were all clear that they wanted to make a new movie that could stand on its own, that lived in the year 2020. It wasn't turning its back on the first two films. It wasn't walking away from the aesthetic and certainly the, the positive vibes and attitude of the first two. It wasn't leaving anything behind it, but it was, they wanted it to exist in modern day and, and just be its own thing. Sure. So very quickly, the concept of doing the Van Halen Iron Maiden thing went away especially once I started seeing footage and you realize as fun as it was putting rising force into the, into the cut, it was so, it was completely incongruous. Like it, was it fun? Was it? it yeah. Yeah. Of course it was fun, but it just didn't fit. Like we were, we were just making two different, two different things. So mm-hmm. anyways, so once they told me that this is really nerdy um, and I'm not going to, I'm going to fumble my way through this, but 
I tried to, instead of just being like, oh, they in the first film, they mentioned Iron Maiden, so we should use Iron Maiden. I get that. And that's definitely my, that was my knee-jerk reaction to how to approach it. But then I thought, what if I put myself in the shoes of the filmmakers the first two times around and asked like what they were real, what they really did? What if I listened to the first two soundtracks a couple times and really instead of just saying, "Oh, they used Primus," why don't like why don't we dig one level deeper and be like, "Oh, they used like you know in the first film the DNA of the first film is that they used brand new music. Yeah. It was it was all mm-hmm. it with, with one exception." was all new music created for the film. And well, can I ask this because this is a question I've I've had. Was the music actually created for the film or was this stuff setting around on what was the label? Was it A&R or not A&R? Um the, oh. the fir- first soundtrack was on A&M. I'm not a I'm not a perfect historian on this, but the the first soundtrack came out on A&M Records. Uh the credited music supervisor was a legend David Kirschenbaum. The executive producer was David Anderley. And like, these are like heavy hitters. They can call anybody and get anybody to do anything. But the first film, as you guys probably know, was made on a budget. You know, you can tell just from the, the names of the artists. Um, and some of them are kind of one-off artists. Like this is the only thing they ever put out using that artist name. You can kind of tell that they were just creating kind of, you know, custom things that sounded like what was on the radio in 1987 to be in the film. It's a testament to the talent of the people involved that they ended up coming up with stuff like Robbie Robs in Time, oh, which man. is just like a stone cold classic. Mm-hmm. It's trying yes. to it's trying to be a U two song, but it's not. Like it swerves it's its at some thing, point. It's so good. It's, yeah. it's its own thing. Anyway, so this is a long way of saying I looked at the first soundtrack and it's almost entirely new stuff created for the film. So instead of saying the DNA of Bill and Ted soundtracks is Iron Maiden, which it's not, by the way. There's no, not a note of Iron Maiden anywhere. Right. Um, I, the DNA of the soundtrack to me is actually when you make a Bill and Ted movie, you produce all new music for the film. That is the blueprint for a Bill and Ted soundtrack. And then the second soundtrack, super interesting, really, really interesting. They go, they swerve from pop rock, you know, hair metal, glam metal, whatever you want to call it, to straight up metal with Megadeth. And Primus and Tom Waits. And then, but they, they also have, yeah, the Primus song, like the, the one version of Tommy the Cat with Tom Waits on it, it feels very, I, you know, I told Alex Winter this too. I was like, something about that second film feels kind of like outsider art to me. Like, it's mm-hmm. really like, I don't know, something about it gives me like Repo Man vibes where it's just yeah. like, it totally it's, does. yeah, it's just like, yeah. we're going to do our own thing and like, we're going to have fun and you're going to come on the ride with us. So It's like it, the Gremlins 2 effect, right? Where like there was a, there was enough of a pot of money there where the studio is like, okay, you want to do this, but you have some weird conditions. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I go for I, it. I, Again, I was I was 13 years old when this movie came out, so I'm not the right person to be talking about how Bogus Journey came about. But you know, Alex Winter has been really forthcoming, and, and Ed Solomon have been really forthcoming about how it got made, where they had they made it in a rush, they got thrown a, a more money than the previous film, and people just kind of left them alone, and they had fun. Yeah, and it sh- and it shows. It's like I mean, <laughs> that soundtrack is just crazy. But it's great. It's great. But it's it's so markedly different from the first soundtrack. If you listen to those two back to back, the first soundtrack is, it, it, I mean, it's rock, but it's pop. It's so mellow pop. It's very friendly, approachable, PG mm-hmm. pop. Yes. And then the second soundtrack is just 
bonkers. It's wonderful, <laughs> but it's, but it's really, it's much more challenging. And uh, I know that people have all kinds of feelings about God gave rock and roll to you. I happen to love it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I'm a zombies fan. So the fact that it came out of the mind of Ron oh, yeah. Argent from the seventies, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's crazy. So anyways, I tried to like, instead of just doing the Iron Maiden thing because it's what you think should go in the soundtrack, I tried to just look at the first two, see what their mindset was. And that is, let's be original. Let's do new, new stuff that's never been heard before. And let's get a little weird. And let's get a little dark at times. And I tried to have that be the blueprint for what to do with the third one instead of like meta references or stuff like that. All that said, that's a, that's very, that's high minded. Like that's an abstract way of looking at it. Bottom line, we had to find songs that, that worked in all these scenes. When it comes to the SWAT van blasting out of hell, that song had to kick ass. It had to rule. It had to have energy. It had to be mean enough to sound like it came out of, came out of death's sickle. Yeah. 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 (laughs) That was, it was perfect placement. I mean, that, really nailed it i that that was such a like fist pumping moment you know mm-hmm. I, it was thank you I'm, I'm glad you liked it It was like i think my regrets about the the songs in the film is that the film is cut together so tightly there's so much story everything just goes at such a clip we don't have a lot of room to let things breathe and just press play on a song and let it play for two minutes at full volume we didn't have the space to do that yeah yeah. So, you know, what you get there, I think, is maybe 35 seconds of Mastodon. That's ridiculous. You have Mastodon <laughs> write you a custom song yeah. that kicks ass and right. you play it for 35 seconds. So that, that song was bonkers good. But I, I've got to say the thing that impressed me most was Big Black Delta. Oh, man. Uh, Don't get me started. There are two songs. The way that both of those songs start out that could have been plucked straight out of the first film. And then by the end of it, it's its own thing and it fits perfectly in face the music, man, that was, that was high art. Dude. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. The big black Delta who his name is uh, uh, Jonathan. He had sent me an advanced copy of his fourth album six months ago, losing track of time. And it had a track called Lord only knows on it. And it was this weird, it, it melded monster, hair metal guitars with synths and his amazing singing voice. And I was like, man, if anything, if any artist can wrap their head around what, you know, how to, how to bridge the gap between 1989 and 2020, it might be this guy. And there's just not that many people that do, I mean, his guitar, you know, I, we have to acknowledge we just lost Eddie Van Halen and uh, you know, a, a lot of people from the crew and have, have acknowledged how big a role he and his music played in the film. So I just want to say thank you, Eddie, for being such an inspiration. But, you know, Big Black Delta is able to play Eddie Van Halen-style rhythm guitars and lead guitars, and then also belt out a great tune and put on some Edge-style rhythm guitars. But there's also drum machines, and it feels very contemporary, but it feels kind of retro and timeless. I don't know. His music is magic to me. And when I heard his new album, I was like, okay, we have to get you involved on Bill yeah. and Ted. Perfect and the, choice to have too the, on, the, on the soundtrack. Perfect choice. I mean, I can't stress that enough. You know, I felt like we had, I felt like we had license again, going back to the DNA of the previous soundtracks. They used Shark Island twice on <laughs> Excellent right. Adventure. Right. Yep. 
So I felt like I felt like we had a, a pass to use two songs from the same artist on Bill and Ted uh, Face the Music. Anyways, <laughs> so the first thing that he sent me was the track that you that is now on the soundtrack uh, as Circuits of Time, and it didn't have vocals on it. It was probably only ninety seconds long, but it was just it was that weird super warbly intro and then all of a sudden it just had that massive massive guitar crescendo (laughs) and i was like i I mean that one just killed me and i was like all right this is it all right we're i'm coming back to this well so yeah he did that and uh that was i think you know we, we tried a few other things for the circuits of time uh sequences ultimately dean ended up liking that song and he was just like let's just have that song be the theme when they get in phone booth that is the song that plays when they get in the phone booth my only my only beef with how it appears in the final film is i wish it was louder yeah (laughs) i would would turn it way up i would have it rattling the walls of your of your house (laughs) um but yeah so he uh once the film was finished we came back we're like great news using that track we're gonna call it (laughs) we're gonna call it circuits of time is that cool with you I mean, uh, John John Bates, uh, who is Big, Big Black Delta, also a huge Bill and Ted fan, and that's that's another thing. Everyone on the soundtrack is a fan. Like this is made. This is like a team of fans. This is made it's by fans. It's just so clear. It's just yeah. so clear that it is, and it's so rare, but it's so joyous too. I yeah, mean, what a gift. I'm glad. I'm, I'm I'm glad and relieved that that shines through. That like the the reason why you like. Big Black Delta is because it's made by a fan who's not, he's not twisting himself into a pretzel to be like this. This is how, this is what he sounds like. And it's my job as music supervisor to find the person that sounds like what the film should sound like. So put that song in there. I said, Hey, Hey John, we need it to be a full length song. Um, He fleshed it out with lyrics. He made it a little bit longer, put in a guitar solo you know, turned it into what you hear in the soundtrack now. And I mean, I, I just love that track. I love it to death. And then he did the other track, which is now known as Lost in Time, the first the first song on the soundtrack. He actually did that for, I think it's scene 81, also known as MP46, also known as the, dad, <laughs> the dad's epiphany. He did that for that moment where the dads realize it's not us, it's you. We're meant to be your backing band you know, go back, watch the film, mute the film, play the soundtrack, see how it works. Because that's what it was actually designed for. It was designed to be like this very sweet, start off sweet and then build and get triumphant and have, and have a, have a heartbeat to it that kind of propelled you through that whole setting up the band on MP46 mm-hmm. sequence. And it worked great for that. It worked great for that. But we kept cutting, you know, <laughs> post-production is a crazy process. We kept cutting, um, and in the end, we were like, you know what? Nothing is nothing is ultimately going to beat a completely custom piece of score from Mark Isham. So we ended up scoring that that whole sequence instead. Mm-hmm. The good news was we didn't have that we didn't have that opening yet. That opening was completely fabricated. I mean, the, the opening to the film was made five minutes before it hit theaters. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was very last minute. I, for one, really really like the current opening. The way that impacts the music department is as we're mixing the film, they're like, Hey guys, we have, we have a new opening <laughs> sequence. And the first two, the first two and a half minutes of the film were brand new, 
delivered to us, you know, like while we're on the mix stage or, or, you know, very shortly before, I mean, this thing came right down to the wire guys, right down to the wire. We're like rubbing the last two nickels together and we had been under lockdown. I think we mixed the movie in June. Yeah. Lockdown started March 13th. We mixed the movie in June. Those last three months were just all, all under lockdown. It's just, it's just not, not easy. And, and, you know, understandably like every movie at the end, when you get to the end, no matter how big the budget is, you're out of money. Um, so anyways, we get the new scene. We've replaced big black Delta's MP 46 Q. And I was like, I don't know, maybe we just take the song that he did for the dad's realize. And we put it at the beginning of the film and we just dropped it in and it felt like magic. I mean, it immediately felt like magic. He wasn't intentionally, um, copying the Robbie Rob song, yeah. but it definitely, but it definitely gives you that flavor. It had some of that feel. And then even a couple of those, uh, from the first film, a couple of David Newman's scores, like his thank you, San Dimas, where he's using, I think more electric guitars. And mm-hmm. it, it had that feel a lot. That's what that really reminded me of. And after all the, there's so many ways that we don't go nostalgic in the film. It seemed like if we were going to start the movie with a voiceover, bringing you back to footage from the first film. It seemed like that was our moment to maybe like ease into our new story with a little bit of nostalgia. It was just like the, the retro grease to get the gears turning (laughs) and, and just like comfortably segue into 2020. So that was the goal of it. But as you guys know, if you listen to the soundtrack, that song, while it, it makes your, it tricks your brain into thinking it's old or retro. But then by the time the song finishes, you're like, that is, that is thoroughly contemporary. Mm-hmm. It's, just so good. It's, a, it's a magic trick. I'm really happy with how those tracks turned out. I'm glad that you guys are too. I, I've been happy to see fans' reactions, being, feeling positive about the way that that song helps immediately conjure feelings from mm-hmm. even, oh, can we talk about the Orion logo? Yes. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, that, another one of the first things I said, I was like, guys, we have to get, we have to use the original Orion logo. But I wasn't alone. Like I said, this movie was made by a team of nerds and a team of fans. So even though I, even though I said, hey, is there any way to dig up the old Orion logo? Um, Michael Uran, the post producer, was way ahead of me. <laughs> he had already gotten it. He'd already gotten everyone to sign off on using it. So we use, as, <laughs> as you know, we use the the old footage. Um, we use the old accompanying music and sound effects. Oh, mm-hmm. So good. And so between the original Ryan logo and the, and the first four bars of the big black Delta song, I mean, I was in heaven. The, the, it really, it makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, w- I almost wanted to applaud, you know, the second you <laughs> see that Orion logo, you just want to stand <laughs> it, up. It's, it's the equivalent of a band releasing an album now and using that old Columbia red brick font on like the yeah. spine of a CD or something. And you're like, Oh, this yeah. takes me back like to, to a very specific time. I love <laughs> yeah. that. So yeah. Cool. There, I mean, like I've said, like there's so many ways that we were like, okay, we're not going to do nostalgia when we could sneak it in without it, you know, without it being too meta. We tried. <laughs> we yeah, I tried. mean, it wasn't a bullhorn, right? It wasn't like, yeah. hey, look, here's people in funny 80s clothes, right? Yeah. That, that yeah. would have been the thing. Um, yeah. So, um, anyway, so, so Big Black Delta. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. And, and that's like, that's definitely an artist that Jason and I were not familiar with before the movie. And now, like, we want to check out his entire catalog. So, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, 
got a lot of variety in it. And uh, I mean, his live show, his live show is amazing. You're not going to get to experience that for a while, but aside from him being a great musician, big fan of the film, he's also got, he has a sense of humor, which a lot of the, a lot of the artists brought to this. I mean, have you seen the Mastodon cooking show? No, I would invite you all to check out the Mastodon cooking show. It probably, probably doesn't need to be said. They're not actually cooking. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's hilarious. Um, You know, all the artists, uh, while they're serious artists, they all have a, they all have a sense of humor and I don't know, they just bring joy and fun to their art. So that was kind of a common thread. So l- um, let me ask you this, as uh, far as like Mastodon, <laughs> Lamb of God, like le- the Lamb of God song actually gets used like the, the, the prisoners reciting the, those lyrics. Did, did you reach out to those guys and they're like, hey, we're interested in having a, you guys create a song for this movie or, or how does that process work? The executive in charge of music, her name is Ashley Waldron. She's, it's a, it's a shame that I haven't said her name yet uh, during this conversation because Ashley and I were co-pilots on this from the very beginning. Ashley brought Lamb of God in and we, <laughs> we just had these ridiculous conversations where we had the script. And the, I mean, the lyrics you hear in the film that are chanted by the prisoners are, are what Ed and Chris had originally scripted. In fact, I think there's even more lyrics in the script you know, hopeless, helpless, dying breath is in the script written by Ed and Chris. So yeah, we talked to them and we're like, okay, this is going to sound crazy, but Bill and Ted go to the future. They encounter like a a dystopian alternate reality where they're in jail and they're leading a prison chant in the yard. And would you be open to adapting this fictitious future dystopian prison chant into a full length song that we then use in the the movie? (laughs) Um, and they said, hell yeah. Uh, and, and again, going back to like how much I love all these collaborators, like Lamb of God were just the best, like the best to work with. They were, as you can tell from the recording, they're such perfectionists. Like they, they sent, they sent us a new mix and master like the day before we mixed this reel, uh, because they wanted to get it perfect. And I mean, that recording sounds like it was like chiseled out of diamonds. It's Mm -hmm. so perfectly heavy and hard and, yeah. and uh, it's crazy. The drumming, guitar playing, singing, it's all, it's all crazy. But I mean, my, my personal nerd joy is the fact that we were able to create a Lamb of God song co-written by Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Best that, co-write ever. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. So if you told that one alone, if you told me before I started working in the film, they'd be like, okay, John, in the future, you will create a Lamb of God song co-written by Ed and Chris. I'd be like, all right, I'll take it. If that's yeah. the only thing I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that one turned out great. And we, to be honest with you, we had, so we had the prison scene. We got the finished track from Lamb of God kind of late in the process. And we were trying, uh, we had other placeholder things in the scene. And you, you, uh, you know what happens in the scene. All the prisoners are beating up Dennis Caleb McCoy and Bill and Ted <laughs> you know, current day Bill and Ted were making their escape and bumping into the princesses. And no matter what we tried, it just wasn't, I don't know, it just didn't match. It needed to be comically hard and tough and have lots of energy, but it also needed to be, to be dynamic enough that it got small and took breaks and pauses. And we completely lucked out because they weren't working with picture. They were just making a great song. We just lucked out. They sent us the song 
we chopped it up a little bit. We got our music editor, two music editors. I have to shout out Jeff Carson and Charles Inouye, who who do the heavy lifting as far as music editing. They chopped up the Lamb of God song to fit picture, and it made the it made the scene so great. And it did the thing that we needed to do, which was it kept the viewer in this really dark, really heavy dystopian alternate future without it seeming, you know, the, the, the violence inflicted upon De- Dennis Caleb McCoy is comical, but we just needed to do, I don't know, it's like a weird needle to thread. It needs to be violent and aggressive, but also not truly threatening. Anyways, that was another one. It, it, I'm thrilled with how it worked out. And I love the, I love the full length track with vocals as it appears in the soundtrack. Just hearing every time the intro starts and I hear them chanting, Ed and Chris's script. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing. <laughs> it's one of the funniest parts of the film. Now talking about, uh, let's see the storyline of, of Billy and Thea and the historical figures, the historical musicians that they find. Like one of my favorite parts about their storyline is you realize that they're just great historians of music, right? The first thing I, w- I was wondering is were those particular characters, Hendrix, uh, Louis Armstrong, were all of those locked into the script by the time it came to you? And then you go out and find folks to play parts that sound like them? I might be remembering this wrong, but I'm pretty sure all of the historical musicians were written into the first draft that I read. But we all spent the next, you know, I think I first met with Dean maybe February 2019. We started shooting July 2019. From February until July, we were constantly talking about alternate personalities to to play those roles. I mean, all over the place. And, you know, we talked about, uh, I don't really like talking about would have been, could have been, should have been, like missed opportunities, because I feel like we ended up in a great place and I I don't want to sound like I have any regrets. But it is fun to speculate or maybe a little bit gives you some insight into what we were thinking to speculate about these other possible players. And so we talked about getting a little more esoteric with the choices because obviously Jimmy, Louis or Lewis or Pops as, as he was addressed yep. in the studio, uh, Mozart, you know, those characters are, listen, I'm, I'm, I can be a music snob. I, I worked on girls, a six season of girls. I'm, <laughs> I, I can be as pitchfork snobby as you want. Um, so the pitchfork snob in me was like, you know, those are really, those are really obvious. Jimi Hendrix, sure. Louis Armstrong, Mozart. Come on guys, we can do better than this. But th- you have to take a step back and be like, guys, this is a, this is a Bill and Ted film. And right. it's meant to be viewed by, by people of all ages, fathers with their daughters, people that are just, I guess you want to make it fun for someone that's at the start of their musical education, as well as someone yeah. that's at the end of their musical education. So we talked about, I mean, we talked about having, the uh, the keyboard player be Wendy Carlos. And we talked about <laughs> having the guitar player be Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we were like, let's like let's make it... We actually... we ha- Dean and I had this conversation. We were like, should we do it in a way that the moment people walk out of the movie theater, they start Googling who those people were? Like, would that be fun? Or would it be more fun? Not that everyone has to Google those those players, but some people would. But then we were like, are we really just like trying to flex our music nerd muscles? Or are we trying to have fun? You kind of just want to throw people up on camera that everyone knows. And you don't want to make anyone feel dumb. Bill and Ted's favorite band is Van Halen, right? <laughs> yeah. 
So like there's things in there. So again, just like all these things threading the needle, like we're, we're putting the old Orion logo in, but we're not using Iron Maiden. So we're having Billy and Thea reference Clara Rockmore, yes. but, we're, but we're not having Clara Rockmore be a character in the film. So like we're trying to kind of, you know, walk that line between embracing what we think are the, the Billy and Thea's true level of musical knowledge, which would know all these players we're talking about and without like leaving, you know, without turning any viewers away and making people feel like that they, they weren't invited to this party. Yeah. It, it, it made total sense in the film too. I mean, uh, they would want in helping their dads, they'd want to go after like a classic rock guitarist that their dads would totally respect and want to have in the band. So they'd want to go after Hendrix. And when Hendrix initially turns him down, they would automatically go to the second level. Well, who would have inspired Hendrix? And then going to Mr. Armstrong. I, I know I, Kelly I, and I had some fears um, when we were talking about this that, and we didn't actually think it would happen, but it was like talking about darkest timeline stuff. Is it going to be like a boomer fest with the music that the, the musicians that are brought in? And it wasn't, yeah, and that was great. Yeah. I, I know that. Oh, oh like, man, guys, yeah. there's so many ways that this could have gone <laughs> really, yeah. really wrong. Yeah, really, right. really wrong. Yeah, I mean, we haven't talked about that. Uh, the pressure that me and everyone felt on this film we know how much people love the first two films. We know how poorly lots of decades later follow-ups have gone. Like, I, I don't want to let down, I don't want to let down Alex and Keanu and the fans <laughs> right. and Ed and Ed and Chris. So yeah. Yeah. Not, did not want to turn into a boomer fest or some like weird, like, yeah. I mean, that was, you can tell by, by the chronological order of things. Like it would be very easy to just get stuck pulling five, men from the 1960s right it'd be very easy to do that be like yeah these are all the famous people that you know and love yeah so we didn't do that could it have been like a a little bit deeper dive and and more esoteric yeah sure of course um but this is this is the direction that we went in and i ultimately i think even though even though you know my music nerd can can find ways to punch holes in it i think this is the most successful way to do it and it's fun you know it's fun taking the time machine all the way back to prehistoric siberia yes yeah. <laughs> so cool. Um, I was mad. I, I wish that I, I wish the runtime was longer so that we could have done more scenes with all those people running around the Sandinas Mall. Yes. I mean, that, like yeah. that's. I'm not here to critique yeah. the movie that I worked on, but <laughs> yeah. But like all the all those actors are great, super lovely. It would have been fun to see them bouncing around a mall. But uh, aside from that, you know, musical choices. I think we ended up in a good place. The other thing is like you like we wanted to set it up so that when Billy and Thea hand their dads their guitars at the end, like they have a space to live in. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously you have to construct the instrumentation of the band carefully. You have to get one drummer, one bass player, keyboard player. You know, honestly, Jimi Hendrix could have been omitted. They already have two guitar players in Wild Stallions. True. Yeah, good point. Um, <laughs> but there's the problem that we kind of needed a, a guitar to be playing in the six minutes of prelude before they get to play their solo. So all these things, I mean, there's just a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of like story points to satisfy and, you know, just geography. How about not have them all be from America that Mm -hmm. I, I I feel like if the story we're trying to, we're trying to tell is this is about the entire world. And our final shot is a global perspective of the world within the Milky way. Like, they can't all be from the East coast of North America. That makes no sense. 
30 years ago, that wouldn't have been a consideration and it would have suffered for it. You know, it would have been like, uh, they would have gone around and gotten like the greatest from the, the fifties to the seventies, Southern California, Roxy. All from LA. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, But what's the whole thing about people embracing diversity in, in all the different, in all different mediums is that you just end up with a better final product by doing it. I reject the notion that there's, that there's any amount of compromise or any amount of degrading the product by by, by making an effort to be diverse. It's absolutely the opposite. You will always improve the product by expanding your horizons and saying, let's not talk about the, let's not just talk about the, the best guitar player in America. Let's talk about the best guitar player in the world. How is that going to make it, how is that going to make the result worse? Um, It just so happens that Jimi Hendrix is a a global figure. And um, I like to touch with, uh, with Armstrong too. And uh, you know, the fact that the film was, was, it was shot down in new Orleans and you got to, was that shot actually in the actual preservation hall? So I will tell you a little story about that. Because okay, great. you talk about things that like I read on the page and, and what I tackle first. I see that Louis is in the script, in the script and I'm going to, I'm going to stick with Louis in this podcast. He, he went by different names. I know that people call it out. Um, I don't f- feel <laughs> familiar enough to call him pops, but when I saw his name appear in the script, I was like, okay, well we have, we have to get that right. Like we can't mess with that. The music right. that, that goes into his horn has to be the best we can do. And I made one phone call, one phone call only. And that was to Christian Scott. Christian is a young lion of jazz, a a living legend at at a young age. He's from new Orleans. He's played in preservation hall and he's not at all a, uh, a Louis Armstrong mimic. He's not an impersonator or a mimic at all. He's very much his own man plays it with his own style. But since we weren't looking for impersonations, uh, we're looking for to just do some artistic justice to one of the most important musicians of uh, modern pop culture. I was like, let's do it with Christian. Christian said, yes, I can't tell you how much I love that guy. He's an amazing player, an amazing human being, an amazing collaborator. He said, yes. And then when I called uh, the preservation hall jazz bands manager, it made that conversation a lot easier. I said, "Hey, we're shooting, we're shooting uh, Bill and Ted in uh, in your town. We have this scene. It would be great if we could shoot it in your in uh, preservation hall space." But then I could follow it up. I, I was like, "Well, you know who's playing Louis Horn is Christian Scott, and that ultimately <laughs> is what made it easy for him to give us the green light." Yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about the preservation hall. Either they, you know, it's a sixty-person collective yeah. of players, and yeah. so casting was just like you know who's around who wants to be who who wants to be on camera that day so yeah we got the space we got the players we got christian we actually pre-recorded christian playing uh, saints in a studio here in la uh to a click track we shipped um his pre-recorded trumpet all by himself he's just playing by himself we shipped that audio stem to new orleans and we played that back on set for the actual preservation all jazz band to play along with. And then we just recorded the whole kit and caboodle on set in the preservation hall. Oh, so what you, what, what you hear is just that's Christian playing with preservation hall in preservation hall 
as real as we can get it without flying Christian across the country. And, you know, we had a, a great actor playing Louis Armstrong. So he is, he is miming the part, of course, but that's Christian playing with Preservation Hall. It's, it's a, so cool. That's a no compromise approach to doing the scene. Uh, that's amazing. I love that venue. Love that city. It's honestly probably my favorite city. I have a confession to make. I've, I've never been. And uh, it's, uh, oh, wow. it's, it's, it's shocking and embarrassing, but yeah. Yeah, well, ho- hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully we can all go back and en- enjoy some point here. My, my daughter was actually born the day that we started shooting the final scene at MP46 is the day that my daughter was born. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So That's incredible. That, yeah. So you can imagine how that might prevent me from being in New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Understood. I, I, was, I was in the right place. I was exactly where I needed yeah, to be. Yeah. yeah. I've got to say also, um, the soundtrack has opened up my daughter's eyes, who's seven, going to be turning eight. Right now in her bathroom, she has in dry erase marker written on the mirror, you are right where you belong. And then she has blame the youth or blame my youth. Written. Oh, wow. it, like <laughs> She is obsessed with the soundtrack. I never thought I'd be riding around town, listening to Mastodon and Lamb of God and you know, all these bands. With you know, it's, it's kind of cool, you know, having Mastodon and Lamb of God and even that Fiddler track on the soundtrack. They're like, they're obviously noticeably harder more aggressive more rock than most of the rest of the soundtrack and and but i like i like how dynamic the soundtrack is like that and you're it goes from sweet very sweet to very tough very quickly i don't know i think it uh, i obviously have no objectivity about it but i feel like it makes (laughs) for a kind of fun weird ride and the again going back to looking at what i liked about the bogus journey soundtrack it's just kind of weird and takes left turns. Yeah. And I was, I was mm-hmm. hoping that a few of those tracks that kind of jump out at you, Mastodon, Lamb of God, Fiddler, um, and even that crescendo in Circuits of Time, I was hoping that it would provide kind of that, like the kick of listening to something weird the way that Bogus Journey did. It definitely does. Man, that was so good. So good. I can't wait to, to hear the rest. Uh, yeah. Jonathan, thank you again for all of your time. Just immensely pleasurable listening to you and getting to talk with you. How heavily he was involved in such key decision-making is blowing my mind here, dude. Yeah, yeah. So humble about it. Um, it just reinforced how much they got right with this movie, with right. Face the Music. And to have anything in this year, 2020, that is halfway as good as Face the Music was, it's more than we could have asked for. So Yeah, and talking with a guy who's our exact same age, that's a Bill and Ted fan that got to be the music supervisor on this movie. I mean, he is living our dream. Yes, he is. He is. Ah, oh, so great. I love all the choices that he made with who to bring in. And it, oh man, okay, all right. We'll, we'll get we'll get into it more next week. Um, next episode. Yep. Uh, we definitely uh, huge huge thanks to Michael Eads uh, because we wouldn't have done this interview without him. So Michael, you do so much for us. This was fantastic. Uh, we want to thank you, and we own this town. Got to thank Scott Bricklin and Scooby Tunes Music for the most excellent use of Walk Away. And JT, be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. I'm heading to the comic shop tomorrow. Do you want me to pick up an issue for you? Well, I know that one's going to show up in the mail. Uh, okay. 
you know, <clears throat> if you want to continue getting the other cover, and then I know that the Dorkin one's coming in, then I'll just have both. <laughs> I think that I don't know why I need that, but. <laughs> Welcome to the world of comic books. Yeah, this it's like, goddamn. This is how they get you. I don't need to combine this with my vinyl habit, you know? Right. <laughs> Good news is this is only like a four-issue series, so we're fine. 